This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm the host today, Kaveh Rafi, a PhD candidate in art history at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Today, I'm excited interviewing Pamela Karimi about her new book, Alternative Iran, Contemporary Art and Critical Spatial Practice, published by Stanford University Press in August 2022. Professor Karimi is an architect and architectural historian. She earned her PhD from the History, Theory, and Criticism of Art and Architecture program at MIT in 2009. Her primary field of specialization is art, architecture, and visual culture of the modern Middle East. Her second area of research is design and sustainability in North America. She is currently a professor and art history faculty at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. She also authored numerous books and publications, including Alternative Iran, which we'll be discussing today. Alternative Iran explore a wide range of artistic projects, including site-specific installation, performances, theater productions, and cultural sites as the embodiment of what Professor Karimi calls alternative spaces. Often these spaces and experiments are subterranean, but at the other times, they remain hidden in plain sight. Alternative spatial organizations have served as a platform for reenactments, negotiation, as well as contentions over the abstract ideas, most importantly, the concept of Farsi Azadi, or freedom. For the past few months, I've never seen a concept so tangible as it fills the air through the protesters' chant and fills the street in Iran, allowing visual, auditory, olfactory, and tactile interaction within a liberated space. That is why Alternative Iran's engagement with spatial organization cannot be more timely. In addition, the book is absolute treasure trove of experimental artistic projects and alternative cultural venues for anyone interested in art and culture. Alternative Iran was awarded a Miller Mice publication fund, uh, fund from the College of Art Association, as well as a publication grant from the Graham Foundation in Advanced Studies in the Fine Art. It is an honor to have you, Pamela. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Uh I I always ask the author about their background, uh, where they were born and where they attended school. Reading your book, I I, I wonder, perhaps this question would help most uh, to clarify the book's prose style. It is somewhat uncommon in art history, uh, art historical scholarship. And, and I think also it would lead us to focus on the overarching theme, which is this ephemeral social, uh, 
spatial experience in, in Iran. And the book's very much opening with this fascinating autobiographical account of you attending lectures on art history at the, this artist studio located in in almost a maze like uh, you know corridors uh, in a, in a mall in Tehran um, during the Iran Iraq War when the sirens would go off while the people were running for the shelters. It's a very captivating story. I mean, it's, it's, to, to some extent, it's like almost as this Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and, 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 and this first account, uh, first-hand account, very much illustrates the extent to which these spaces constitutes everyday life in Iran. I wonder if you might begin by telling us about yourself, your interests, and how the books came about. Absolutely. Thank you, Kaveh, for highlighting uh, the um, the first few pages, the story of the first uh, few pages of the book, because as you said, um, actually, this book um, relies heavily upon uh, both the experience of the artist as well as the experience that I've had um, as a person growing up in post-revolutionary Iran. Um, I was involved um, in the art world from a very young age. Uh, my father uh, was uh, a civil engineer who also collaborated with a lot of architects. Uh, and my parents were, in general, very, very interested in culture and the arts. My mother, also a history teacher. So they, they sent us from a very young age um, to these, um, uh, to these um, artist studios. Uh, that operated um, independent uh, of official and governmental institutions. And they taught us painting, they taught us drawing, uh, but at the same time, uh, they also, a lot of these amazing uh, teachers who uh, operated these uh, independent institutions uh, were also former university professors. They were very, very um, uh, um uh, scholarly in their approach. Um, so they also offered art history um, uh, teaching uh, within the context of the studio. And that was my first exposure to the to the world of art. I started going to these uh, institutions um, at the age of um, 10, and I continued um, um, until uh, I entered college, um, College of Architecture. And as an architect, um, I was always interested in space, how um, people navigate their way through the different spaces um, in Iran and um, in Iran and um, in different um, circumstances. Um, um, so when I decided to write a book about contemporary art practices in Iran, I was very much um, um, intrigued by uh, this whole notion of um, navigating uh, your way through the spaces of the city, through the spaces of the so-called underground, and, and, and all the other um, uh, spatial circumstances that have allowed um, Iranian artists to thrive and to create a unique uh, art form uh, in Iran. Um, since the Islamic Revolution, there have been a lot of artists in Iran who have operated um, uh, on so many different um, levels and, and also who have worked on so many different genres. Uh, but I think that what fascinated me was the ways in which they navigated their way through space. Um, so that's why this book was inspired my background and my practice. And finally, uh, my um, exposure to the ways in which American artists here in the United States actually operate in different um, informal spaces um, uh, was also uh, something that inspired me to think more deeply about the connection between what's happening in Iran and the rest of the world. So these are basically the two sources of inspiration uh, for the book's um, basic concept, which is the relationship between art and space. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, like these informal spaces, maybe uh, to begin, uh, uh, I think maybe we, we can uh, refer to the term in, in Farsi. You use you know many Farsi words uh, and also with the translation. And it was very fascinating. Some, one of these fascinating words in Farsi is zirzamini, as you mentioned. Uh, 
which translate to underground. Uh, so zirzamin in Farsi also means base. Zirzamin also in Farsi means basement. Uh, uh, thus, you know, when we use zirzamini in Farsi, there is always this architectural illusion, uh, which I found relevant very much to the book's focus on this most of the built environment. Um, and often the underground is associated with the practice that, you know, happen in hidden place, especially to avoid censorship. However, you convincingly show that this zirzamini is more complicated and the purpose, uh, and, and you propose actually the alternative in a more nuanced manner instead. Uh, could you tell us about this alternative space? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Since the Islamic Revolution, Kaveh, there's been a lot of stories about the Zirzamini artists, the Zirzamini musicians, right? The people who operate in the physical underground um, of Iran. And there has been actually pictures of them uh, performing in um, these underground spaces that are literally, uh, uh, you know, the basement of homes, the basements of different institutions or different uh, buildings. Um, and um, and I was very, very curious about uh, what this um, underground um, uh, kind of obsession means for Iran. Is it about illegal works that are completely rejected by the officials? and by the main uh, kind of governmental body, which is called the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance that issues um, permission for all the um, art project projects and music and theatrical performances that take place in Iran. Um, is it something about them being illegal, meaning that they, they haven't been successful in gaining permission from the ministry or that they have uh, avoided getting the permission from the ministry that they go underground, or is there something else implied? And during the course of my investigations for this um, book, actually, I realized that in Iran, things are much more complicated than when we think here. Uh, uh, you know, they're not as black and white as they seem, at least not in the past 43 years and before this September when the protests of woman life freedom have happened in Iran and things have become a little bit bolder, a little bit more black and white. But before that, prior to September 16 of 2022, things were always um, operating in the gray zones. And, and by that, I mean that, um, you know, you, you see a picture of um, a theatrical performance in the in, in a subterranean thermal bath in central Tehran. And you may assume immediately that this is some sort of illegal uh, kind of operation. This is something that does not have permission from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. But actually, I figured out that they, a lot of them actually do secure permission from the ministry. So why? Then the question is why there is this desire to move away from the center, to perform in an underground thermal bath instead of uh, stage in an official um, performance hall. To go away uh, from Tehran, go to the middle of the desert, or go to the forests of the north and create um, installation projects in those areas in the middle of nature, as opposed to uh, creating them in the context of the galleries and the official museums of the capital? Or why is it that we have performances that are ephemeral, meaning that they operate in very, very short spans of time, um, and then before the police comes, before the uh, the state authorities come to question the project, they've already packed their stuff and gone. Um, and why is it that there's so much improvisation and negotiation between gallery directors, curators, and artists of all kinds? So these kinds of complicated processes um, that involved so many different actors, uh, from directors and, uh, and, uh, uh, and gallery curators 
to artists themselves uh, actually uh, allowed me to write a more complicated story of the art scenes in uh, in Iran. Yeah, yeah, I, I, exactly. That's that's a, what really much very much stands out to me. These compl- these complexities, and also this you know d- during these four decades, the changes uh, that you beautifully trace. Uh, I think you you perfectly lay out in 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 in, in, in just uh, uh, in your. Uh, uh, respond to my question about this the outline of the book right the, the book you 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 beautifully lay out this outline these four chapters uh can you tell us a bit more about how uh, you come up with this structure and uh you know what was the rational uh Absolutely, Kabe. this this was not an easy book to write Kabe, because um I was dealing with um more than 120 artists that I interviewed, um, and, and, and I should say actually art experts, because not all of them are art makers. Some of them are managers. Some of them are directors um, and things of that nature. And so the big problem for me was to come up with a format, with a structure that can bring all of these different artists from different genres together. I needed a red thread to connect all of these stories together, to create um, a story about post-revolutionary art in Iran um, that represents a movement rather than different stylistic approaches or iconographical references to certain political themes and so on and so forth. So I noticed that uh, there was something in common in all of these artists that I studied. And that common thing was how they operated in different spaces, the spaces of the city, spaces of nature, uh, and um, spaces of homes um, and interior spaces um, of of their lives, of their day-to-day lives. Um, So that's why the organization um, of this book um, actually uh, took place um, uh, in terms of um, uh, the ways in which these artists navigate um, uh, via these um, spatial axes. Um, So for example, the first chapter uh, is titled Invisibility, and it's mostly about artistic activities um, that take place in um, underground spaces. And by that, I mean literally underground spaces, the basements of homes. We know that a lot of post-revolutionary galleries actually were created in the basements of private homes. And over time, uh, they actually became official by gaining permission from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. But first and foremost, uh, a lot of them were unofficial underground activities, even if They presented art that doesn't look at all political, that doesn't look at all uh, a a challenge to the Islamic regime. Uh, But nonetheless, because um, uh, arts, especially during the 1980s and during the Iran-Iraq war, was very, very limited, uh, these uh, uh, activities had to happen um, in the underground. Um, Chapter two uh, is titled Escapism, uh, that actually uh, summarizes um, a series of case studies um, uh, that are um, about artists who want to um, stay away from the center. And by center, I mean Tehran. Actually, this book is about 450 pages. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to focus on artists in other cities. So most of the artists that I discuss in this book are actually based in Tehran. But if they go to other cities, if they go to natural spots that are very, very far from the capital, uh, they still remain the Tehrani artists um, that are the main protagonists of this book. So chapter two, Escapism, is actually about moving away from the center and moving along these horizontal lines and going away to the middle of Iran's central desert or to the forests of the Caspian in order to have a little bit more freedom of expression for these artistic practices. 
Chapter three, ephemerality, as I said, actually focuses on the concept of time, how time and space work in relation to each other in artistic practices of post-revolutionary Iran. Chapter four is called improvisation. Um, and um, in this chapter, I focus mostly on the ways in which curatorial activities negotiate their way within the system that the Islamic Republic has created for artists. And I must say that in each of these chapters, I actually rely on critical theory and mostly critical spatial theory that was developed uh, you know, in the French context, post-World War II French context, uh, like, uh, like the work of the works of uh, Michel de Certeau, Henri Lefebvre, uh, and, and Situationist Internationals, but also some uh, during the 1960s um, and uh, the different political movements that were very prominent here in the United States of America. Um, uh, and also um, some, some theories that might not uh, be uh, mostly familiar with our audiences. For example, affect theory, Sarah Ahmed's um, studies of affects and emotions uh, was really informative to me. Um, theories of jazz um, articulated uh, by scholars like Berlin uh, have also been uh, very, very useful to me because it is within these theories that you find um, uh, you find uh, a way to describe things in those in-between places. So instead of like going uh, through the black and white world that we often know of Iran, I needed to talk about these gray areas, these in-between moments, um, and therefore I needed to uh, kind of rely upon these theoretical concepts in order to justify my claims. Which, which I think beautifully worked out because like the, 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 the vastness of the field, I mean, that you cover in the book, it's amazing. Uh, you discuss art, uh, theater, you know, alternative theater, architecture, and, and, and how does all these, you know, performances, uh, uh, practices and projects coming together and just these knots connected to this spatial exploration experience. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, spe specifically, like, as you mentioned, uh, the more than 100 interviews with artists, theater experts, urban visionaries, designers, architects, all coming together. And it's, it's beautifully, like, tailored uh, in the sense that the book is very much smoothly readable. It's even like for, I, I, I see I'm coming from background of art history. Uh, uh, the, the book might be sometimes technical, but I can see even uh, uh, for, for someone not coming from the art, Art history background can see the connections, and 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 that's that's a beautiful you know lay, layout for the book. And I think what you also mentioned about this uh, your methodology, specifically is, as you mentioned, like you adopted this improvised approach. That's very much very 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 well worked uh, in the books. Uh, and I, I want actually want to follow up uh, with the idea that you mentioned about uh, this, uh, what's called sen sensuous uh, scholarship. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, can you a bit, um, ex you know, uh, unpack this uh, idea uh, for us? I think very much closely uh, related to your, your the, the, the treatment of these materials in the book and your approach. Yes, absolutely. I borrowed the term uh, sensuous um, uh, um, scholarship from um, uh, Paul Stoller, who has written a book uh, of the same title about um, a sort of anthropological investigation that engages the body and the feelings of, um, of the anthropologist um, in the subject of his or her study. Um, and along the same lines, um, I think that Sarah Ahmed's uh, um, uh, uh, you know, elaborations on the significance of affect and, and emotion are also very, very important um, in this process. So um, to make it a little bit more clear, uh, um, because, you know, 
you ask us specifically about sensuality and, and emotions and affect, um, I, I just want to tell you that um, when we think about emotions and feelings, we often um, regard them as uh, personal things, right? Um, like people feel sad, people feel happy, people feel angry about something. Uh, but then these scholars allow us to see that these feelings are actually contagious, meaning that they can spread in the society and they can create certain ideologies. They can create certain orientations uh, towards a subject matter or towards uh, something that is important to people, a belief system, and so on and so forth. Um, and that was very, very important to me because in many of these art practices that I studied, things are pretty abstract, actually. You know, art, that's, that's what makes visual arts different from literature or poetry. People don't exactly articulate what they mean by what they've made or what they make their audiences do during an interactive performance. Uh, but then you you see that through the feelings um, or the uh, emotional reactions uh, of the audiences, certain meanings uh, uh, are generated. I give you uh, a very tangible example of this experience. Um, I was in Tehran in 2006 when Farideh Shah Savarani created her gigantic installation uh, I wrote, you read, uh, in uh, the dilapidated former headquarters of the Etelaat newspaper, uh, which is a very conservative newspaper, by the way, in Iran. And uh, this structure was just abandoned because Etelaat had moved uh, its uh, headquarters to another building. Uh, this is a relatively, um, uh, you know, old building, and, and it's dilapidated. And on the three floors of this gigantic building, um, she created this um, breathtaking installation of newspaper scraps that she um, attached to the walls, the piers, the columns, and to the ceilings of these rooms. And so uh, this was created... Uh, at the height of Ahmadinejad's, President Ahmadinejad's uh, arrest and interrogation of journalists. So this was a direct response to how the government was treating uh, journalism in Iran. However, both the artists and the visitors were pretty quiet about <laughs> what this meant and what they were doing there. I was amongst them. I was walking with them, and I noticed some people were like, Holding, holding these peers in their arms, crying. Some people, <coughs> I apologize. Some people um, were getting a little bit emotional. They were crying. And the artist herself, being aware of what she was doing, she actually um, brought um, a few of her students blindfolded to the exhibition and she asked them to record their feelings and their emotions about what, what they were going through and what this meant for them. Um, this exhibition took place in November. It was pretty cold in Tehran uh, that year. I remember that. And these students have recorded their voices and I have that recording and I'm grateful to the artist who um, generously offered it to me. Uh, they're talking about the experience of walking through these halls and feeling um, the coldness and the anxiety that these spaces give them uh, walking through the newspapers because the newspapers were also the newspaper pieces were also spread on the floor and and the kind of sound that they made um, made them a little bit agitated and therefore i think that this is an example of an art installation, highly political, that can be only expressed through these feelings. And the artist intentionally did not want to kind of make a, 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 a very clear statement about what this whole experience was about, but rather she wanted to engage the feelings and the emotions of her visitors into the artwork. So when we talk about how these artworks actually 
create some sort of affect or engage the feelings of their visitors. Um, this is this is a tangible example. But of course, you know, there's so many cases studies in this book, and I'm sure that uh, the readers can find more interesting examples in the book as well. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, this, this a, yeah that's a, a very, I think, traumatic also experience. And I think that's about very, uh, I can... Uh, Wonderful story to um, I think <clears throat> capture um, the, these kind of experience. Uh, maybe my question, uh, my next question, maybe I want to move specifically to the chapter one uh, when you discuss visibility and invisibility and uh, the order, uh, which is which is pretty much complex. Uh, so as you sh- as 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 you've shown in the book, the emergence of these alternative space in residential and private spaces uh i think the the, the word that's I, I think it's you you also might use uh if i'm not mistaken this came up this kind of out of a need uh, and it seems that this need is kind of the need between being visible and also invisible uh sometimes even in iran people want to be invisible and specifically i see this invisibility very much also tied to this class structure uh, in, in a very interesting way. So this becomes a kind of a, as a purview of the wealthy, they, you know, they, they can, you know, uh, you know, afford uh, these, these spaces and the privilege for this kind of very much the private space to, to enjoy, right? Living beyond the social restrictions and becomes invisible in this, in certain sense. So they, they, they can just kind of relax in, in, in some of these uh, more restricting um, you know, public rules, uh, which is very much interesting. And since the 1990s, uh, very much with the adaptation of neoliberal policies and the, 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 the deepening wealth gap, which was very much ex- exacerbated by the widespread uh, privatization, corruption, sanction, and the lifting of uh, subsidies during the, specifically during the President Ahmadinejad and later on, uh, it, it seems to me that there is a complex social dimension to these spaces in terms of visibility and invisibility. What would be the best way for us to navigate this murky politics of these spaces within the matrix of privatization, neoliberal policy, resistance and censorship, uh, perhaps? Thank you, Kavit. Yes, that was um, another uh, very challenging um, topic that I had to deal with in this book. Uh, because as you say, there is also a class dilemma here. Uh, there are some critics in Iran uh, who actually accuse artists. Of, uh, and, and, and here we're talking about like top-notch artists, artists who are well-paid and have become famous and are sponsored by uh, very, very well-connected, wealthy uh, gallerists and so on and so forth. That they create this... Uh, otherworldly spaces for themselves um, that have nothing to do with the realities of the society. And because they are protected, they can um, actually have the freedom uh, to operate within these quote-unquote alternative spaces. Uh, that was definitely a dilemma for me to deal with, uh, but I, I don't think that all artists uh, belong to that category. There, As I said, uh, there are also artists who actually uh, operate in open public places. There are artists who actually uh, 
uh, along with the kind of uh, posh exhibitions that they have in some posh institution that is by invitation only perhaps and is completely private they also are willing to go to the villages to do some kind of participatory art projects to engage ordinary people. Uh, uh, there are artists uh, like uh, uh, Puya Aryan Kaur, uh, who actually uses a, the technique of camouflage. Um, and, I, and I really love how he does this so elegantly. So he touches on very, very sensitive taboo topics, but by melding his art forms into the background of the spatial settings um, in which he places his artwork, uh, he actually confuses the viewer. He also manages to confuse uh, the ministry uh, that issues that often issues uh, permission for for his art projects. Uh, so whether it's in the context of the desert or in the context of um, a mirror work uh, uh, hall, uh, uh, you know these mirror work. Um, interiors um, are very popular in 19th century Iran and sometimes uh, he actually camouflages he manages to camouflage his own mirror work sculptures against these walls and so I want to say that a lot of these artists actually operate uh, in, in so many different um, platforms that are not just these posh institutions but you're right about the fact that the neoliberal economy, which was uh, set in motion during the time of President Rafsanjani after the Iran-Iraq War um, and uh, matured during the 1990s, allowed artists and galleries to create private spaces for art. Uh, the first manifestation of that are the Kolangi projects. Kolangi in um, Iranian uh, building terminology refers to buildings um, uh, that are emptied of their residents and are um, and are waiting to be demolished to be replaced by another uh, more profitable building, a residential tower, and so on and so forth. And this happens during the time of President Rafsanjani. Um, and and uh, so the Tehran municipality actually comes up uh, with a, a series of new regulations that allows um, a construction um, uh, experts um, to do a lot of these activities. So a lot of buildings in Tehran are emptied of their residence and are prepared for these artists to occupy them um, in order to have more room for freedom of expression. Um, so that's one thing. And then uh, going back again to your concern about the class issue. Um, during the course of my interviews with a lot of art experts, I, I also came across a lot of criticism of other artist groups, um, so-and-so gallerists, and, and, and so on and so forth. As a historian, I don't think that it's my place to cast judgment on any of these individuals, but rather my job is to kind of um, um, show what's happening in Iran. So rather than casting my own judgment upon um, uh, some of these institutions or private uh, entities that have been criticized by others, um, I try to kind of put them in dialogue with their opponents. So the last chapter, the epilogue of the book, actually focuses on these convoluted kind of back and forth dialogues. They're mostly intellectual, I should say. There's nothing uh, kind of... Uh, um, nothing kind of primitive about them. They're, they're very, very intellectual. Iranian society is a very, very sophisticated society. People are very well read, um, and, uh, and therefore all of these communications, all of these um, intellectual exchanges um, uh, are important, um, and I try to look for them, and I try to uh, find their traces in all kinds of publications, and I try to uh, present them in the context of the book. And going back to um, one more uh, important point that you brought up in the beginning of your interview, Kabe, about using Farsi terminology. Um, you know, 
in the course of reading all of these dialogues and exchanges of information between different art experts in Iran or architecture or urban planner experts, uh, I actually noticed uh, that the Farsi language has developed a lot since the 20, uh, since, you know, the 1990s when I was in Iran. Um, so the language has become very, very sophisticated. And I felt that it's our responsibility to kind of focus on the meanings and associations of these words. You know, we keep talking about decolonizing art history without actually thinking about what the true meaning of a word that they use in the context of Iran is. Is it really an equivalent of what we use in English or does it have other connotations? So that was my dilemma and I tried to present it in the book. Yeah, this is the fantastic, like the development and, and the, the speed of the of, of, of the creation of new words. Uh, it's 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 kind of like uh, fascinating uh, for me. I, I left Iran in two thousand twelve, and since then I, I see this like so many words. It's just I'm I was unfamiliar, and and the book very much helped me, although I'm coming from the background of Iran to very much understand uh, the the. The expressions, uh, very, very, some of these expressions very much like I would say the scientific, very much like uh, tied right to the history uh, and these contingencies in Iran, which is which is which is fascinating. And some of these work perfectly captures, um, and it's great opportunity the, uh, to to you know to be exposed to some of. Uh, the, the, how these artists conceptualize using Farsi language, their own practice, and um, in one way or another, which which is very interesting. Um, I, I think very appealing to me when I was reading the book. There are many, uh, I mean, threads. Uh, you know, when you were speaking, I was thinking to to as a follow up. Uh, maybe I want to uh, continue. Uh, uh, or conversation about Kolangi, and then I want to come back to some other concepts um, that you invoke. Uh, so regarding Kolangi, um, so this this concept of vacant space, it seems that this is recurrent in in in, in most of, almost all chapters in one way or another. So, and it seems that uh, is is an important aftermath of this rapid urban expansion uh, was specifically in chapter three you discussed is leftover spaces uh, and the, these are this kind of the uh, these uh, remainders of this rapid development uh, these kind of the unplanned space uh, you know, somehow popped up in these urban areas like as a vacant lot suspended construction sites unused under passes empty water can but I want also maybe we can also think about some of these older building uh, 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 like um, the homes um, that you mentioned uh, after Rafsanjani's development projects there are also examples in chapter one ex- uh, as well as chapter four of the performance and art project that engage with alternative space in also in anachronistic way, sometimes a site of remembrance. For example, in chapter one, you refer to them as this raw space. And here is this often the vacant buildings, uh, spacious one or two-story family villas uh, built under the Pahlavi regime, which was overthrown by the revolution in 1979. And you have also written on the abandoned homes, empty streets and dilapidated factories in the American post-industrial cities and this unconventional revitalization of these spaces. Uh, In the book, you also uh, trace these spaces that are often the products of Iran's shift to this consumer economy. What is the significance of these vacant spaces for alternative art and culture. I know this is really uh, a complex, you know, uh, topic, but I, I will appreciate if you can unpack for us uh, this uh, its cultural significance uh, and artistic significance of these spaces. Uh, 
Absolutely, Kaveh. Uh, you know, when I when I started uh, my job here at the University of Massachusetts, it was after the uh, uh, the um, the clash, the 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 Wall Street clash um, and the decline in economy. The city of Detroit became bankrupt. And I remember vividly how much we all, as educators, we all became fascinated by how artists actually went to Detroit, occupied these empty places, and started to actually give new meanings um, to these spaces. Richard Florida wrote a book um, called uh, uh, the creative class in which he talks about the role of artists uh, in revamping and revitalizing um, a declining environment. I myself live in an American post-industrial city in Massachusetts. Here in Massachusetts, we call them um, gateway cities because these were gateways of opportunities to Europeans uh, who came to the United States and they were hired by a lot of textile factories um, that were present in Massachusetts um, in the 19th century. But then uh, the economy shifts, right? A lot of these industries actually are moved to uh, third world countries uh, uh, um, and therefore um, uh, all of these buildings uh, uh, have become uh, vacant. Um, and uh, so what do we do with them? Mm, artists actually um, um, are very important in terms of how they make use of these spaces in the United States of America. You know, some, um, uh, some actually um, worry that um, the gentrification of these areas um, is also partially related to the presence of artists because artists go somewhere and then these places become tourist destinations and then powerful agents go ahead and take advantage of the opportunity and build Starbucks, Bank of America headquarters and so on and so forth in these areas. So they become gentrified and even artists themselves cannot afford to live and operate in these spaces. So we, we know that problem. So I wanted to understand where Iran stands um, in relation to this history that was very, very contemporary to me and very present to me, part of my own teaching. I actually involve my students in the post-industrial city and I encourage them to think about revamping some of these vacant lots and vacant spaces. And so I wanted to understand if Iran is also following the same genealogy and the same kind of processes, economic processes, or that in some ways Iran is different. Because when you write uh, history of art um, of a certain country, uh, by default, you have to kind of define where this artistic movement stands in relation to the broader history of art, to the global history of art. And the more I investigated, I realized that Iran actually, to some extent, um, these processes are similar to what's happening um, in the United States because of the neoliberal economy that is also a thing in Iran, even though it's the Islamic version of that, according to politicians and economists, if you ask them. Um, but to a larger extent, uh, also these practices resemble the practices of artists in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. Uh, like um, uh, the situation in Iran back then, before uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the communist regimes, uh, there was this desire among the artists of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union to move themselves away from the official center of, um, um, of arts um, and, and performances and all kinds of creative activities. And therefore, they were attracted to dilapidated buildings. Actually, I interviewed Moscow-based artists, and it breaks my heart because um, actually one of them got COVID and passed away after uh, I interviewed him. But actually, I interviewed them because I, I wanted to get as close as possible to the reality of what was happening in the 1980s before the fall of communism in Moscow. And it was very interesting to me what it meant for them in relation to the KGB, how they defined it as an alternative to the official artistic platforms and so on and so forth. So I think that Iran, in some ways, uh, the story of um, uh, these alternative spaces in Iran resonates with 
the situation in other authoritative systems um, where artists are subject to censorship, heavy censorship. Um, and in other ways, um, it's actually tied to the global um, economical developments um, that are um, resulting from uh, the implementation of neoliberal economy. Um, so um, in the book, um, I've tried to get into the details of that. Um, but I think for the purpose of this platform, uh, I think this, uh, this answer was hopefully uh, convincing enough, Kabe. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I, I, I highly recommend the, the audience uh, check out the book, uh, especially the, the book provides so many examples and and beautifully articulate uh, the points. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe my next question, I want uh, to move to these environmental concerns. I know that you're, you're working, you, you know, you're work very much engaged with environmental art as well in architecture. Uh, and I want to uh, very much think about this chapter two, because it stands out, uh, because it's unlike most of the project in the book. Uh, which is in one way or another have to do with urban spaces. This chapter charts the project in remote areas away from metropoles, specifically Tehran. Uh, so use this expression, uh, escape, escaping without living, which you borrow from the French cultural critic uh, Michel de Certeau regarding this post-revolutionary Iran art project in remote natural sites. It appears that, and I think you argued uh, in the book, that they are motivated, these artists are motivated uh, more by escaping state control, censorship over and over urban surveillance than by any, for example, ethnographic or environmental concern. You, you, you provide a really interesting uh, examples. You mentioned the tactic deployed by the of uh, theater group uh, to circumvent censorship and simultaneously seek unconventional space through outdoor rehearsals under the ages of ecotourism. Uh, but it's not quite very much ecotourism or related to environment, but they, they, they collaborate with environmental activists. Um, so what's fascinating is within a transnational framework you provide in the book, you incorporate examples from the U.S. and Soviets uh, into the conversation about art projects involved with na- nature incursions since the 1960s. It seems that these environmental concerns are not, as, as just mentioned, like as not important as it is, for example, in the context of North America. Could you tell us more about uh, these uh, projects and what's the difference about the Iran? Absolutely, Kabe. I, I actually am deeply interested in environmental issues in the Middle East because I think that um, whether we want to accept it or not, a lot of the problems, the social and political problems in the Middle East are rooted in its natural resources and its environmental um, circumstances. Um, and so... Um, With regard to chapter two, it was a dilemma for me because in Iran, they actually call these art projects that take place in the middle of the desert or in other parts of um, the the kind of natural environments of Iran. You know, Iran also, in terms of its environment, it's very diverse um, for some of your audiences who may not know, you know. there, there are deserts, um, completely barren deserts. I mean, there's no vegetation whatsoever. So very different from what we see in Arizona, for example. Mm. And then there are there are very lush and humid forests in the north, um, in the Caspian region. So when the artists go and uh, do an artistic project in these areas, they often in Iran they call them land art, Juanare uh, Mohiti, or environmental art. Um, and so. I was wondering in what ways does it connect to the environmental or land art projects executed by famous American artists like um, Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser in the 1990s? To what extent are they uh, similar to these projects and to what extent they have their own autonomy and they have their own um, uh, kind of um, 
very, very um, unique Iranian approach um, to the subject matter. And I realized that they're actually very different from the land art projects of the 1960s in America, because as you know, people like Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser were predominantly fascinated by form and also fascinated by, by the form of the desert, the form of the natural environments in which they implemented their projects. But also their main goal was to say that we, we don't want the gallery. We don't want the museum. We just want to go out and do whatever we want to do. And of course, they had a lot of financial support. Victoria, uh, Virginia Dawn uh, famously supported a lot of these gigantic projects um, that actually took a lot of energy and funding to materialize. Um, in Iran, um, um, uh, things become uh, a little bit more convoluted. Um, on the one hand, if you look at the art itself, you may think that, okay, it's another land art project probably inspired by 1960s land art in the U.S. and the U.K., but actually it's not. In some ways, it's closer to the environmental art projects that took place um, in the former uh, Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union. A lot of these artists actually wanted to stay away from the center, go to remote places to have more freedom of expression. And by that, again, I don't mean that they want to do something that is taboo and completely political and against the establishment, but they just want to have more freedom to discuss ideas to uh, uh, and to, to express their artistic interests. Um, uh, for example, one of the projects um, that took place in I believe in 2014 in, in the central desert of Iran and actually involved uh, a couple of visits. Um, uh, multiple buses from Tehran uh, moved uh, to this place that is very close to the city of Yazd um, in eastern Iran. Um, and the artists actually sat around this land art project and they discussed uh, um, different um, intellectual subject matters. So basically the art became an excuse for these people, for these artists to come together and have a debate and have a discussion. Regarding the off-theater performance, um, actually that's another very interesting example that made things a little bit more complicated for me. Until 2015, um, environmental issues were not politically sensitive in Iran. After 2015, because a lot of um, environmental activists actually came to the fore and criticized the government's policy regarding different environmental resources in Iran, um, environmentalism became a very, very sensitive topic. So they started arresting these people. Some of them were mysteriously killed while in detention. And so we know that today, uh, putting your finger on an environmental topic is, is, very, uh, is very tricky. But back then, when the Off Theater actually collaborated with uh, an environmental organization and um, an uh, eco-tourism uh, organization that was um, spearheaded, I believe, by Ali Inanlu, who's a very famous, um, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a very famous um, eco-tourist uh, kind of figure in Iran. Um, they, they actually went to the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, the Off Theater Group, and they said, okay, we want to make an art project um, in the mountain or in, in a cave outside Tehran. And they said, what are you talking about? Uh, it's important to note that the guidelines of the ministry are very limited. Like they can't, they, they don't have rules and regulations on how to perform in a cave or on top of a mountain. So they said, well, this is not theater. Uh, you must be joking. Um, uh, and so, no, we don't give you permission. Um, so in order to be able to do this project, they actually um, packaged their project as an uh, environmental tourism project, um, as an ecological tourism project. Um, and Ali Inanlu and his staff actually collaborated with the artists to take a lot of visitors um, to the spot, uh, um, which was in the middle of the mountain, mountainous area, uh, where um, the experimental theater group of uh, were able to perform uh, their um, their kind of interactive uh, experimental um, play, uh, and it was a very successful project. And um, so.
when environment comes to the language of these kinds of artistic practices, it does come in in a very, very convoluted, unexpected way. Yeah, I see. Um, we, we, I mean, this is the fascinating, right? The fascinating topic. The, these are lesser discussed um, in terms of the contemporary art and culture in Iran, the complexities of the politics involved. Um, so I, I know I'm aware of the timing. Uh, I have many questions, but perhaps we can move to uh, this very much important topic. I see very much the connection between book uh, that you're discussing about these spaces and the events unfolding in Iran. Uh, so the, in, in a sense, the book seems to me prescient as its title suggests, Alternative Iran. Uh, this is right now is on the mind of everyone in Iran, Alternative Iran. Just, I mean, a year ago, it seems very much far-fetched idea, but today it with the national nationwide uprising seemingly turning its perhaps in the revolution the expression alternative iran has captured people's imagination and rekindled a collective sense of building a viable alternative to the current social order every day in the street the protesters activate uh, an alternative space uh, and you can see through the media and the videos, for example, at the beginning of the protest, uh, you, 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 you see this uh, flux of videos and images of young girls cheering crowds, raising their arms before ceremoniously tossing their headscarf into the bonfire. And all, the, all people circle around uh, the, this uh, bon fire and chanting. Um, it's pretty amazing uh, images. So, Pamela, uh, you recently also wrote a, an article uh, titled The Many Shades of Iran's Protest uh, Art, which was published in Hyperallergic on October 2022. And you look at some of the works produced after the protest erupted. Uh, in the article, you, you name a few artists uh, present in the book as well, uh, such as Azad Ganje, Puya Aryampur, and Katayuni Karami. Do you see any continuation between these alternative spaces in art and culture and the temporal alternative space, perhaps, uh, that you see in these protests? Uh, uh, but what do you think about, is there any relationship here? Absolutely, Kaveh. One of the reasons why I uh, I felt it was important to publish that piece in Hyperallergic is because I saw that there were articles written on, you know, artists who posted uh, different images uh, of the falling women or young men uh, during the protests. Um, and, and I felt like it was necessary to say that art, protest art in Iran has not always been so straightforward, uh, that it has had a life of its own, and artists before the new generation that is practicing right now have gone through tremendous, tremendous difficulties to keep art and culture alive in Iran. I wanted people to know that there have been different shades of uh, protest art in Iran, some of which are not as bold and are not as revolutionary as the art that is being produced in Iran right now. They're much more subtle, uh, but the subtlety does not mean that um, they were devoid of challenges. Um, they actually, uh, for example, in the case of Av, they circled, they, the, the theater group literally circled a mountain in order to avoid a bunch of religious groups who didn't want them to perform near their village. So in order to avoid that religious community within a certain village in the mountains, they actually chose another path in order to reach the top of the mountain to perform their art projects. So I think that the Iranian art community has done so much and there is a history to all of these. And I wanted people to know that that history has not been a very straightforward history. It's been a very complicated history. But today, if we see some brave people 
coming out and, and making amazing art in the middle of the street, I want people to know that they are standing on the shoulders of these giants, uh, the former generation uh, who tried so hard to keep art and culture alive against all odds. Yeah, uh, thank you. So uh, maybe that's that's my last question. I'm 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 curious uh, if there is any project you're currently uh, working on and any plans uh, for a forthcoming book. Absolutely, Kaveh. I'm right now. I'm working on a project on the environmental design discourse in Iran. Uh, which emerged actually in the last decades of the Pahlavi period, and it continues to this day. Uh, but one of the main protagonists um, that I focus on in the book is Nader Khalili. Uh, Khalili is known for his um, Geltaftan system, which is um, a system through which he actually improves the performance of adobe structures in Iran uh, to make them um, stronger and better for the production of cheap housing and accommodation for earthquake victims and refugees and so on and so forth. Interestingly enough, uh, Khalili used the same technique, which doesn't require a lot of wealth uh, or a lot of facilities or technologies. It's very environmentally friendly to propose outposts uh, for lunar surfaces. Um, so by using regolith, which is uh, the soil of any lunar surface, Khalili proposed in the early 1980s to NASA a very, very interesting project uh, uh, through which uh, we can actually uh, move to other um, uh, you know, planets in the case of an environmental disaster on Earth without having to uh, depend on um, gigantic sources of finance. Um, so um, I am fascinated by the process through which um, this whole idea uh, was developed. Um, and also another angle in my study is the relationship between environmental design and spirituality and Sufism. Uh, uh, that Iranian architects were very fascinated by during the 1970s. Uh, today in Iran, uh, there are also some environmental um, art projects, low-tech, very environmentally friendly productions uh, that are not known uh, to the outside world. And these are also some of the case studies that I'm exploring um, uh, to, uh, to kind of... Um, bring in into this book. So that's what I'm working on right now. And to me, it's, um, it's yet another important dimension about design and, um, and, and creativity in Iran that needs to be told. Oh, thank you. Uh, so uh, for anyone uh, interested in uh, what's I mean, has a question of what's going on in Iran? I want I want to encourage them to check out the book Alternative Iran: Contemporary Art and Critical Spatial Practice uh, by Professor Pamela Karimi, and also her brilliant uh, article on the recent uh, revolutionary art in Iran: The Many Shades of Iran's pro uh, Protest Art. Uh, thank you, Kamala. Thank you for taking your time writing this book and, and showing that there is a real history, right, in terms of these uh, whole contesting space, the thinking and uh, about the alternative. So it's not that all of a sudden these all these movements and people's right resistance just uh, happens. Just there's whole history, as you mentioned. Uh, thank you uh, for taking your time and uh, coming to this program and uh, discussing the book with me. I greatly uh, appreciate your time. Thank you, Kaveh.